0: We're now, listening to, we're now listening to The Blacklist, Blacklist, Blacklist. Podcast. The Blacklist Podcast, HD Recovery, HD Recovery. HD. Jared Blaine. Bonnie. Bonnie, 2022, let's get it, we once were lost, but now we're found, coming back to life from the underground, we coming up, Making a difference in our thoughts and our words and our whole appearance. We once was dirty, but now we're clean. Chains has been broken, and now we're free. So sit back, relax, and just take a ride as we take a journey to the other side. Welcome to another episode of the Blacklist Podcast. Uh, today, we have Sonia Johnson. Um, Sonia's been making moves in the... Recovery community, and uh, she's definitely somebody that we look up to. And um, we definitely uh, are very grateful that you um, are taking the time to speak with us today.
1: Yes, thanks for having me on.
0: Yes, definitely. Um, I know this has been something in the making, so we definitely appreciate it. And we see your moves and your come up. You're definitely out there making an impact, definitely. So we definitely appreciate it again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. When we started talking, I think I had like 20,000 followers, right? Yeah. And
0: and I was just telling that to somebody yesterday. I'm like, she had, you know, 20K and now you're at 200K on Facebook, you know,
1: and then you're at
0: a little over 50 on um, TikTok.
1: Yep. Yeah. I think I was about 10 when we started talking
0: there too. (laughs) So you, in just that short period of time, you've definitely, you've, you've been making moves. And so, we see you and, uh, we're definitely stand with what you're doing.
1: Awesome. Thank you.
0: <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So why don't you start telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, and you know, we'll kind of give you the platform, give you the floor and kind of go from there.
1: Okay. Awesome. So I'm Sonia. I'm a recovering addict. Uh, my clean date is seven one two thousand and nineteen. 2019. I was in my addiction for 20 years and my addiction started really young. And, you know, I believe that what started my addiction unknowingly at the time is trauma, right? Like I went through some trauma in my teenage years. I was sexually abused, physically abused, I lost a child, and then the father of that child passed away, like all in a very short period of time. So when I found drugs, like that was the solution to my problems, right? I didn't have to feel anything. I could come out of my shell and be that person that I wanted to be, but didn't have the Courage to be my true self, right? Because I don't even think I knew who my true self was. But, um, you know, so when I found drugs, like it was the solution. And back then I was a teenager, you know? So I thought we were just like young and wild and free and having fun. And it was a phase. And that's like what we do at that age, you know? But for me, like it quickly became the problem. <laughs> Very <young. laughs>
0: What um? What age did did you say that the trauma started happening at for you?
1: So I was about 11 when I, when I first was sexually abused and that's where it all started at, you know, my, my dad and my mom got divorced when I was young. And then I was sexually abused by a man in my house. So it was like, I was looking for a father figure and then the father figure came and then he sexually abused me. So it was just, you know, very hard for me, but he was also the very first person to ever give me a cigarette ever give me a joint, you know, so he used that as a manipulation tactic to take advantage of me. And that's where it all started.
0: Yeah, it's unfortunate that like the ones you look up to the close that are supposed to be the closest to you are the ones that end up, you know, hurting you or betraying you. You know, I was just sharing that yesterday on Jamie when I was talking to to Jamie that, you know, my mom was married to a guy that introduced me to pornography and introduced me to, you know, taking shots of whiskey and, and, and smoking and everything like that. So it, it, it's makes it harder nowadays to trust anybody. It really does.
1: Yeah. And, and that's very common, right? Like it's usually a family member or a close neighbor or somebody that's really close to you that, that initializes that abuse. And also like, you know, like you said, like the father figure in your home, that's what we were taught to like drink and do drugs. Like that's okay. And that's cool. But little did we know, well, for me anyways, I had the disease of addiction lying dormant inside of me, waiting for me to pick up that first drink and that first drug, which activated it. You know, I mean,
2: I was, I knew I was an addict by the time I was I lost a child and the father of your child passed away. How old were you when that happened? Cause I have a similar story. So that's what that caught my yeah, attention. Right so now, So I was
1: 16 and I got pregnant. And my parents made me have an abortion. And I didn't want to do it. But, you know, I was 16 years old and my parents didn't know what to do with me. And they thought that, you know, it would ruin my life. So I remember, like, they took me to the abortion clinic. All the other girls were like, you know, they did this before. It was no big deal, you know. But I didn't want to do it. And they took me in the room and I got to hear the baby's heartbeat. They told me I was 10 and a half weeks and they took me in the next room, and they took the baby from me, and I got pregnant at a, at a party house, right, like, because of the sexual abuse happening in my home, I was hanging around a party house all the time, I didn't want to be at home, so it was always at this house where his mom would, like, let us drink and party all the time, he'd just say we were all having sex, <laughs> and he was my boyfriend, right, because you become boyfriend and girlfriend with whoever's got the party drugs, because that's what, He got me pregnant, but we were also partying at that time, you know, and he took that within that same year that I lost the baby, he took one and a half pain pills, turned out to be one and a half Oxy-80s. Back then, there was like, the Oxy epidemic was like just first starting. This is like literally 20 years ago. So it was just first starting and we didn't know a lot of information. There wasn't a whole lot of overdoses going on, you know, and he was the first person that I ever knew to overdose. I was in 2003.
2: Wow. So I, I have a similar situation, but I, I kept my baby. I actually kept my baby. That's why your story right now really called out to me. I've never heard your full story before. But um the father of my child, I was 17, I got pregnant, and um the father of my child, we were in gangs That's passed away due to that. So that really hit me right now when you we were talking about it. What
0: um when was the first time that you ever decided picked up anything or your drug of choice um how did that come about
1: i remember it clear as day (laughs) i can literally tell you where i was who i was with what i was doing what the room looked like what it smelled like what time of night it was i remember clearly everything about it because i tried alcohol right and i tried marijuana and you know we were just partying and stuff but when i tried cocaine. I will never forget it. The moment I did my first line, something awakened inside of me and I immediately fell in love and it was all I wanted to do. I just wanted to do more and I wanted to hang around the people that had it. And it was like it set it off inside of me. I was 17 years old when I tried my first line of cocaine. It was New Year's Eve and that was it. I mean, that was it. That's where it all started to happen for me.
0: See, I, I never, I never messed with any stimulants or uppers. And so I couldn't even begin to, you know, uh, pretend to just, you know, know what it feels like. Um, I just didn't, I didn't like the fact of my heart racing or, you know, anything like that. So I, I just kind of, I always stayed with downers, never, never got up.
1: <laughs> well, it definitely gets you going. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I just didn't. I just, I'm like, man, it would just feel so weird to like, especially, you know, when people get into meth and stuff, wanting to stay up for three days straight. And I just, yeah, I couldn't do it. you know, that,
2: my DOC. Yeah. That was my DOC. So I can relate to that. But see, I have ADHD. So it would get me going, but it would get me focused. You know, it would calm down when people were like getting on my nerves. I would smoke just to calm down. Like I could smoke to go to sleep, but I could also stay up for days on end.
1: Yeah. And that's the thing. Like when you first start doing it, my experience was, and and meth is what took me out in the end. Right. But it, it doesn't really like make your heart race and make you like super crazy paranoid. Like that comes later, (laughs) you know, in the beginning, when you first do it, it's like, you just feel so good and you can just uh, socialize with everybody and, you know, get all the house cleaning done and do all the things like that you want to do. And then later, (laughs) Once you've gotten into it a little bit, then comes the paranoia, the peeking out the windows, the searching on the floor. You know, like heart racing, thinking that you're going to die because you hear the train coming. You know, I mean, <laughs> all of that stuff comes later. <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, I can identify with the with the looking on the floor. Oh, I think I dropped some. You're you turn off the lights and you you pick up a flashlight and you're on the floor looking.
1: <laughs> yes. You do the flashlight at the
2: angle, right? So it shines bright to you. <laughs> right. Because it'll shine through the rock and you'll see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Is so, that, but so you were saying that like you're able to do the house cleaning. I can definitely relate to that. I got three kids. And is that, is that a trigger to you now? Like sometimes, because sometimes we all have bad days and that's okay. When you're high, you don't have those bad days ever, you know? Is that any, like, does that trigger you sometimes or ever? Did it ever? Just like having a bad day, like, oh my God, if I was on this, I would feel like this right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, especially in the beginning of my recovery, right? Because when you're used to living at like full steam all the time, and then you stop using drugs and alcohol, you slow down so much and you've burnt up so much of that dopamine or serotonin or whatever that is that you have a lack of it when you find recovery so you're you know you're lazy you gain weight like you don't feel good like you used to like all of those things happen and it can be such a big trigger in the beginning and for me like I went through my first year of recovery you know napping all the time and you know like just trying to get by and do recovery because that's what they told me to do and I eventually like got in this like health and wellness lifestyle thing you know i work out i eat really well i drink water and come to find out this is the addict in me right i realized that if i eat good i exercise and i drink water i have energy and i feel good (laughs) so it's like i've found a way to turn that negative into a positive and still feel good but in a good way you know
0: so when you first started using cocaine um how did, it, how did it go? For, was it something where you can just do it every now and then? Um, was it manageable in the beginning? Like, like, where did you go after that?
1: Yeah, I feel like every addict in the beginning of their journey, like has a period of manageability, where it's recreational, and it's social, right? So on the weekends, we would do cocaine. And of course, I would do it if I could do it during the week. But, you know, for the most part, like we would all get together and do cocaine on the weekends. And then we would start all doing it during the weekend. And I don't know if it was like my friend group. I'm sure it was, but we all sort of became addicts at the same time. We were the same age. We started experimenting together. So we all fell into addiction kind of in the same rate. So, you know, it didn't really present itself. Even though I knew that I was addicted, my family put me in detox when I was 18 years old. Um, it didn't really present itself as unmanageability for a little while you know and what happened is I did cocaine for years right and I loved to snort it or whatever and then it turned into crack (laughs) Mm -hmm. that got bad quickly (laughs) yeah Yeah.
0: um how, how long after starting you know to use cocaine was it before you transitioned to crack I would
1: say I I would say probably about four years I just did cocaine drinking smoking weed ecstasy like you know and then I got with a guy after the one guy passed away and he had been smoking crack but I didn't know he was smoking crack because he wasn't really like heavy on it at the time he had just started as well and one night I was at his house with his sister and they we couldn't get any cocaine so they got cracked. And I remember very well the first time that I did a hit of crack, I remember saying to myself, wow, that was intense. Like it was super intense. And it immediately throws you for a loop. Like, you know, the par- the paranoia and all that stuff, that happens immediately with crack, you know? But I remember like I didn't like it. You know, like I prefer doing cocaine over crack, but I still did it anyways. For years I did it. You know, I think I did crack until I was in my maybe 28 or 29 years old
2: and, the, was, and
0: I'm sorry go go ahead Bonnie
2: no I was just saying that was quite a long time yes
0: the guy that you were with so he was he was also using crack as well mm-hmm. okay so you yes. didn't you didn't have to try to hide it or anything
1: no and everybody knew you know I mean I never was like, I I guess I did try to hide it. But at the same time, I was pretty forthcoming about where I was at in my life. Um, But yeah, we did it together. And the thing about crack, and, and I think crack is probably, in my opinion, it's maybe not the worst drug, but it is the most mentally obsessive drug, right? When you're doing crack, when you run out, you cannot think about anything else other than getting more crack. You know, I mean, with meth, and as you probably know this, Bonnie, like, if you run out of meth, you're still going to be high for three days, you know what I mean? Like, if you run out of crack, you have to get more, and you got to get it now, and it doesn't matter what you have to do to do it, so I think that's really where my means and ways of getting more started to progress, right, because first it was, like, stealing, and now it's, like, sleeping with people and, you know, selling drugs and, like, trying selling people's appliances or going to my mom's house and stealing her money out of her purse, like all that stuff happened in the crack era, you know, for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and again, and, you know, I don't know on the mess side, but I do know with like on, you know, the fentanyl and the opiates and everything, you know, once you're once you're you come down, you come down. So you gotta re up as quick as possible or you're gonna be sick, you know. Yeah. I, that was always my deal was I wake up every morning and I might have enough to for that morning. And this, my mission for the rest of the day is to figure out how the heck I'm supposed to go get high again, you know? Yeah. No matter what I had to do, because I knew I was gonna be sick at that point. I knew it was gonna what it was gonna entail. Mm-hmm. And it's for us being addicts, it's crazy because you sit there and you think just to be sick, like we get to a point now, you know, that where you don't really get high anymore. You just do it because that you have to be you don't want to be sick. And like mm-hmm. you have to be able to get through. And to know, like, as an addict, that drop that gut feeling when you know that you're out, and you don't know if you're going to be able to re up how uh, it's just that anxiety that comes with it and everything. It's like the end of the world, you know?
1: Yeah, I personally feel like for a woman, it's I don't know, this is my personal experience. But I think for a woman, it's like, a little bit different or for me, let's just say for me, right? Because when I and I I think that fentanyl and like the opiates is probably the most responsible drug that I've ever done, because when you run out, you know, you're going to be sick Mm -hmm. and you don't want to be sick. So you're willing to pre-plan, right, how -hmm. you're going to get your money so that you can sustain your addiction. So when you're in crack, you spend all the money, no matter what, and then you figure it out when you're done. Right. When you're an opiate addiction, you plan it out. And for a woman, this was my experience, you can continue your addiction if you're willing to pay the price. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. you know, there wasn't many times. I mean, of course, I got sick a lot because you can't be an addiction and not get dope sick. You're going to get dope sick. Yeah. But I feel like for a woman, maybe it's easier to fall further down the rabbit hole because you have
2: more means yeah. of making money. Yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah. I, I could see that. Definitely. You know, you, you have more options than men do definitely to, so I, I completely understand. Nice. So down, down in, you know, to 28, 29, did you, did you have kids by at this point? Yes. So how, how, how was that? How was that raising kids and, and, you know, being an addict?
1: Oh man, it was bad. <laughs> So when I first had my kids, I was 24 and 25 and I got on the methadone program because I was trying, I was already like doing pain pills back when my first boyfriend passed away, you know, so I was trying to manage at least my opiate addiction and I wasn't really doing the stimulants when they were first born. I was just doing opiates, but I eventually got back into the stimulants, you know, so the, for the first couple of years of their life, like I was at home, I was being a mom, but I had all this unresolved trauma inside of me that I never dealt with. So, you know, I was still looking for a means of escape, which is eventually what led me to going back to the stimulants. So, around that same time, actually, the reason that I quit smoking crack is because I came here to Florida, right? Because I had moved away for a little while with my kids to start a family. I came back here to Florida, I brought my kids home. I was smoking crack, got caught. You know, my kids were at school. My neighbor caught me smoking crack at the sliding glass door at my apartment, called Department of Children and Families on me. So Mm -hmm. that's what that was like, you know, my first case plan here in Florida. And, um, you know, it wasn't right then, but within the next year or two that I sent the kids to live with my mom because I couldn't I couldn't stop using drugs, you know, and I just I didn't want them to be put in foster care. I knew I wasn't going to be able to pass their test because they had me jumping through flaming hoops to try to get my kids back, you know. So I sent the kids to live with my mom, and that is where I stepped from one drug to the other drug, right? Like, I went from crack because you can't manage it. Like, everybody knows you're on crack. You're dirty. Nobody wants you in their house because you steal everything. You know, I mean, you look like you're on crack, <laughs> you know, but... <laughs> When I stepped over to meth, because it was the beginning of my meth addiction, (laughs) it wasn't as obvious, you know what I mean? So I could kind of dabble in meth. It sustained me for way longer, you know? I mean, I could do a line of meth and be good for hours and hours, up to like 12 to 18 hours, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, but still, like, I had just sent my kids to live with my mom I had gotten off the mat program, back on heroin, you know, so it started to go downhill really fast from there.
0: Did you have the desire to get clean at that point or were you not at that point yet?
1: No, not at all. I mean, the thing was like addiction is the only thing that I ever knew, right? So from a very young age, the only thing that made me feel good was using drugs. Mm -hmm. And I hated myself because I lost my kids to my drug addiction you know, even though they were with my mom, like, you know, they weren't in my custody and I hated myself for that. So it was like this, this hamster wheel that I was on, right? Like I hated myself. So I used drugs. I used drugs. It made it worse. (laughs) I hated myself. I used drugs. I used drugs. It made it worse. You know, so it was like I was stuck in this cycle of going deeper and digging deeper down into that hole um, of addiction, you know, and but it wasn't long. Like I started doing heroin. I started shooting it, I started shooting meth, you know, because I hated myself and I was digging further, deeper. I was also digging my way to my rock bottom at the same time.
2: Yeah. I can definitely relate to that. I also got my kids taken away. <laughs> I see. I, like I said, I had never heard your full story. And, and now that you're telling it, it's like, I can relate a lot to you because I also <laughs> got my kids taken away. Um, I went I out, went to out. The car and I ended up blacking out. I was gone for like a little over an hour yeah. when I, got I guess the people where I lived, my roommates, they called the cops because my in the room and they were crying because I wouldn't come back. I literally came back like an hour, 30 minutes later, the cops were at my house, CPS was at my house and that, that one hell. Yes.
1: Yeah. Having CPS at your house is like the worst thing ever. Ever. I mean, it it feels so demeaning. And you just the shame and guilt that comes behind that is just incredible. Not to mention, the case plan that they the allegations that they write up on you, right? Did they give you a paper of allegations where they told you how horrible you were and all these things that you could have possibly did? I oh, mean, yeah.
2: Yeah. That that breaks you. Like till this day, I cannot look at that. I still have those that paperwork. And yeah. I remember being in jail. I I never brought myself to be able to read the whole thing because I would just completely break down. I couldn't. I actually ended up getting criminally charged. Wow. So um, that's that's hard. That's really wow. hard. And like, oh I I can remember that day I actually got charged for um I tackled one of the officers because I'm wa- I'm trying to walk in the house to get to my see what's going on. Cause like I said, I just came out of it. I completely blacked out in the car cause I was so lit. And, um, the cop's like, no, you can't go to your children. I'm like, what do you mean? I can't go to my children. So I grabbed the cop and I tackled him to the wall. And then next thing, you know, I got like four cops on top of me.
1: Wow. It's like a mother's instinct, right? Like we have this, or I'm sure fathers too. Like we have this instinct inside of us to want to take care of our kids and be a parent and make sure they're safe. And they rip that away from you and tell you that you can't be around your kids because you're unfit and you're not safe and you're a bad person. And all the police, all the child welfare agents, like everybody is up against you and your family, too. Right. Because you have this case on you. Now your family thinks you're a piece of shit, too. So it's like everybody, it just all compounds on you at once. And it's just the worst feeling ever, you know.
2: I remember walking up into that first court, I was tied, I was handcuffed from my wrist to my to my waist, my feet, I was shackled, and my kids looked at me scared, Like literally so scared to see me walk in like that, and it, that was the worst feeling ever, like your own kids being scared of you, you know? That's so
1: traumatizing.
2: Yeah, definitely. That that's, that's really hard when women go through that. I think that's really, really hard. It's really hard to get over just the fact that, you know, you put your kids through that kind of pain.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. It is, it's hard and it's, it takes a lot of work, you know, and, and really you kind of just have to suck it up for a while, you know I mean? You got to suck it up and push through it and it does get better, but it takes some time, like a good amount of time.
2: Oh yeah. I would definitely say years. Like at the beginning, it was so hard for me to just even like take their love once they were ready because I felt like I didn't deserve it. I felt like I harmed them, like I did them dirty, that I I couldn't even accept their love, although they were more than willing to love me. But it was so hard to accept it because I felt the shame and I felt the guilt and I felt like I didn't deserve their pure love, you know?
1: Yes, that's so interesting because my kids were the opposite, right? Like they didn't want to love me. I was like open arms wanting them to accept me back into their life, but they weren't ready. You know what I mean? So I had to like wait it out and they were, they came home and I still had to walk it out for a while before Mm. they were willing to accept me back into their life.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's hard. So what,
0: um, at what point, what is, whether it's a certain situation or whether When when did you finally start to say, like, there's got something's got to give like, you know, what happened?
1: So it was kind of like a series of unfortunate events, right? (laughs) So first, my husband, you know, I got married to my children's father back in 2009, and he kind of went through this roller coaster of addiction with me, even though I was doing all these like crazy ratchet things. Right. Like we were both in addiction and he was kind of ratchet, too. So anyways, um, in 2017, he got endocarditis from using and almost died. And, you know, of all of my life, like I said, back in the beginning, right? Like my father kind of left the picture, which I just want to say, I have a relationship with my dad today. But when I was younger, like I searched and searched for that father figure and I had abandonment issues because I thought that every man in my life was going to leave. My husband was the only person that never left. You know what I'm saying? Like, no matter how ratchet I was or how much we fought or how how horrible I was, because I felt like I was a horrible person. I deserved to be left. He never left my side, you know? So in 2017, he got endocarditis and almost died. And they wouldn't let me go in the hospital because I was an addict covered in track marks. I mean, looked like a damn hoe with no clothes on. You know, they didn't want me up at the hospital, and I don't blame them. But um. So anyways, he was in the hospital for about six months, and he finally got out, and then he got arrested days later, and that started his journey to recovery. I mean, it didn't happen right away, but he went to jail, the rehab, jail, the rehab, you know, over and over again, but he was over there, right? So now I'm alone in my addiction, and I went from, like, bad to, like, really, really bad. Like, it just didn't matter what I had to do, who I had to screw, who I had to step on who I had to rob, like, it just didn't, like, all, all bars, like, there was nothing I wasn't willing to do, and what it led me to was living with a drug dealer in a shed, um, behind a trap house with no running water, no food, no shower, no, like, nothing, it was like a bed in a shed in somebody's dirty-ass backyard of a trap house, right, And, you know, I wound up going out one night and I got four felonies. I got charged with four felonies on my birthday, July 19th, 2018. That's what started it for me. So when I went to jail, I got out on supervised release. And this is where, you know, um, so the terms of my release were like, just don't use. Just don't use, call and report. If we call your color or whatever, you got to come drop. I made it like two months before I was violated and back in jail. I sat in jail for a little while. Then I got out on probation. Same deal. Terms of my probation. Just don't use report once a month. So this is where I had the desire to stay clean, but I didn't have the ability to do it, right? Because I went right back to the drug dealer boyfriend. I went right back to the people that I was hanging out with and I was shooting dope before you know it. I mean, within hours. So I I was at probation one day and I got caught trying to falsify a drug test, right? Well, On my paperwork, I had put my mom's address, which is where my kids were, and I got caught trying to falsify. I admitted to him that I had been using meth because he kind of told me if I did that he wouldn't take me to jail, but guess what? He lied. (laughs) So I went to jail, and he called Department of Children and Families on me. So this Mm -hmm. time, I went back to jail. I sat in jail a little bit longer, got reinstated on my probation, had a case plan put on me, And I was out for like 30 days before I violated again. So by this point in time is July 1st, 2019. That is my clean date, the date of my last arrest. Um, You know, I was sitting in jail. I had custody. Like the day after I got there, Department of Children and Families showed up, gave me a drug test. I dropped dirty for four different things, got a new one of those case plans put on me with all the allegations. I had two violations of probation on four felonies, so I had a good amount of points where I was looking at going to prison. I didn't have what I had the whole rest of my life, which was the drugs to numb the pain, right? I didn't have that. I was coming off of a horrible detox, and I just hated myself because I used before to numb the pain of hating myself, but I couldn't do that anymore. So I hated myself and the whole world fell down on me at once. And it was just like, I'm fucking sick and tired of living like this. I am fucking sick and tired of being this person. And I don't know at that point in time, if I believed there was another way of life, but I knew I was sick and tired of living that way of life.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, how much, um, how much present time were that you dark looking hole at? And
2: like- Towards the end of it, like you're not even high. You're not even getting high for fun. Like it's no longer fun. You're just doing it literally to numb because that's what I was doing it for. Because I have I've felt so horrible that I didn't have my kids, you know, not having them. That's the worst thing you can do to me. That's the one thing that breaks me. But then having them, I was obviously, you know, damaging them by always being in my addiction. Obviously, they didn't know. They didn't see it. But I wasn't a present parent. So it's just a vicious cycle. Like, you don't even get high anymore because you like it. You get high because you have to, numb because you don't want to deal with that pain. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
1: That's exactly what it is. I mean, you it just becomes a chore. You know, you just use to use. You're not enjoying it. There's nothing fun about it. You are just a slave to it. And it's like you were saying earlier, Jared, I mean, you have to do it. I mean, you if you don't do it, you get sick. So you <laughs> have to continue using, even though everything that you love, the more you use, the further that stuff goes away. But you just keep choosing the drugs against your own will, even when you don't want to use. You do it anyways. Yeah,
0: it's right. not. It's not fun anymore. You know, at that point.
2: And it's right. not an option. I, I I hear a lot of people saying like drug addicts or users or alcoholics or whatever. It's a, It's an option. It really. It just gets to a point where it's not. It really gets to a point where it's not. And you never imagine it's going to get to that point you're using. And you never think about the fact that one day this will no longer be an option. It will have to be a chore. Like you have to, you know, and I, I feel like that's something a lot of people don't understand. And it really, that's what it is. And that's what it is. It's a disease. You know, it might've been an option the first time, but after that, it's a wrap. It no longer becomes an option. It literally is something you have to do just to maintain, just to survive.
1: Yeah, I love that you said that because it's, I've tried to explain to people. I mean, people say addiction is it a choice? Is it a disease? And it starts with a bad choice, right? Like we chose to, but many, many people pick up a drink or a drug when they're a kid and don't become an addict. But mm-hmm. the thing is, like we, we ju- choose a drink or a drug when we're teenagers or whatever to escape trauma or grief or whatever that is, or because we're prescribed it by a doctor. <laughs> and then one day, unknowingly, we cross over this invisible line and now mm-hmm. we can't stop. And the yep. more that we go further into it, the worse our life gets and the more unmanageable things get and the deeper we get. And the further we fall from that choice that we had in the beginning, it's no longer a choice anymore.
2: Yeah. And the more you use, the more trauma is created because you initially start off with whatever trauma happened to you as a child or whatever age you decided to pick up. But as your addiction progresses, I mean, you put yourself yourself in situations that you're like, holy crap. You know what I mean? But it's shit that you have to go through and it create it only creates more trauma that now you have to get over. For some people, it creates more abuse. They stay in abusive relationships or they're the abuser. You know what I mean? Either way, it still creates trauma that now you have to do even more. So you use even more. And that's mm-hmm. the part that I feel people don't understand because I get a lot. Well, why don't you just quit? Why don't you just stop? It's not that simple. It really, really is not. And I need and people need to understand that it's not just like, okay, that's it. You know what? It's it's creating me problems. I'm gonna stop. Right. Yeah. You it's you keep you, you because you wanna numb away from those problems. You wanna be able to solve those problems without the feeling. <laughs> of it and that's not going to happen because yeah. this is what's going to make you it's going to it's, gonna, it's what's going to lead you to make a right choice but you're numbing that feeling so you're thinking you're making the right choice but you're only going down further down that hole
1: mm-hmm. exactly yeah I remember when I first started when I was in recovery and I first started working on myself and somebody asked me are you afraid I don't know if I'm going to word this correctly but are you afraid that when you stop using drugs, your life is going to be so miserable that you have to continue using drugs? You know what I mean? And that's what I used to think, right? Because when I didn't have drugs, I was so miserable. Like I just couldn't imagine living life without doing drugs. I knew no other way. And I didn't understand like, how the hell do people get up in the morning and go to work? Like, how do they pay their bills? How do they like cook dinner? Like all those things seem so foreign to me. And I couldn't imagine being content or happy doing those things because I was so miserable when I didn't have substances. It's like, you know, there's no choice in the matter. You just have to continue to do it.
2: Right. I mean, there definitely is a scientific explanation to that. I mean, just using meth, I don't know what it is with all the other drugs, but I know using meth, you literally get injected so much dopamine that your your brain, your receptors get used to. I think it's like 10 times the amount that you would usually get with anything else that gives you pleasure so your receptors get used to that overload of it that once you're not on it like nothing like for me that that was that was something i definitely thought about too because i was like dude like nothing makes me happy anymore like i don't get pleasure out of things i don't the things i used to like i no longer like them because of all that overload of dopamine that now your receptors are so out of whack
1: Yes. And you are exactly right. And that's normal, right? So when you find recovery, be prepared for that. Like that's going to happen. You're going to not be excited about things for a little while. Mm-hmm. Things aren't going to be fun for a little while. Like you, you're you going to have to completely kind of be reborn and learn what you love to do and find joy in things. You know, I mean, it, you have to completely start over. It's like a rebirth, right?
2: Right. You have to find yourself again. And that's what I tell people all the time. You will never if you're trying to get that person that you were before you use drugs, you will never get that person back. That person has been through so much. You have changed so much during your addiction and all the trauma you went through that once you're in recovery. You're definitely, I mean, you're definitely going to want to be another person, period. You know, you don't want to be the person that you were when you were in addiction. Um, but you will never get that person back. You need to find yourself. And that's hard. At the beginning of my recovery, I didn't even know what type of music I liked. You know, I would. I didn't even listen to music for so long. Even now, people are like, God, oh, you ever heard this song? I'm like, no. And yeah. they're like, where have you been living under a rock? But it's just, I, I didn't even know what taste music I had anymore. Insane. Yeah. (laughs) And everything
1: changed, right? Because the stuff that I used to like, I don't like anymore. It doesn't bring me the same kind of excitement. I Mm -hmm. like a different kind of thing now that makes me feel good about myself for doing the right thing. So the things that I'm drawn to are different than what I was drawn to when I was in my addiction.
0: Right. Uh, So how long did it take um, once you uh, once you got out of jail and, and started working on your recovery before you got your kids back?
1: So what happened, like I was actually, so when I was in jail, I was supposed to go to prison, right? And if I went to prison, I was going to lose the option to be able to get my kids back because I had this case plan on me. So literally the day of court, um, at the very last minute, I was supposed to take an offer to go to prison, 20 and a half months. um, I got granted a chance to go to treatment instead of prison because I went to this part of the jail called the recovery pod. I talked to a lady in there who pulled some strings, got me into treatment instead of prison. So going to treatment would mean that not only could I stay out of prison, but I could try to work this case plan and get my kids back. And while I was in treatment, they had parenting classes. So I was able to do that. I got the substance abuse part done. And then I had to get stable employment and stable housing. So what was suggested to me was to go to sober living, which is what I did. And, you know, during that time, while I was in treatment, my husband moved into a sober living house. So he was over here working on his recovery. And then I went to sober living and worked on my recovery. And we kind of just started working on ourselves for a while and saving money and working Mm. on being productive people of society and all those things, you know. And so I got clean. My clean date is July 1st, 2019. And I brought my kids home. In April 8, 2020, so almost a year later, I was almost a year clean when I brought my kids home, we got an apartment, we saved up enough money to get an apartment, we moved in together on Valentine's Day, Mm -hmm. and then two months after that, we brought our kids home, so we had officially completed the case plan and were reunified and brought our kids home. But there's like a whole nother wave of stuff that goes behind that, right? Because like we were talking about earlier when I brought my kids home, they weren't like thrilled with me. You know what I mean? They had been living with my mom for six years.
2: So mm-hmm. they didn't
1: trust me. And it was it right. was a process. It was definitely a process.
2: Right. And I actually want to point out how lucky you were that mm-hmm. somebody would pull strings for you and get you um get you into recovery instead of going to prison. Because I feel like somebody has to say this. I feel like CPS and the whole system is an entire freaking setup because once you pick up a case plan, but you're also doing criminal charges. And usually when you pick up a CPA's CPA's, um, plan, it's usually you will usually get criminally charged. Right. So it's such a setup because I went through that. And the fact that your case plan has an expiration date. If you go to jail, You have no control over that your expiration date is still the same date and if you lose that you completely lose your children so you were very lucky that you were you were able to get into recovery and you were able to continue working your case plan because while being in jail there's not many options Mm -hmm. if you're still able to work a case plan while being in jail that's cool because it will continue your case but there's not many while being in jail so you're literally sitting there doing dead time because it it brings Mm -hmm. nothing to the table for your case plan with cps
1: no, you're exactly right. And the thing is like the maximum amount of time that you're going to get on a case plan is like 18 months, right? That's with the continuances because it's supposed to be 12 months, but they can extend it to 18 months if there's some progress happening. If you right. if I was to have gotten sentenced to prison time, they would have given guardianship to my mom. And that's what they wanted to do. They told me that's what they wanted to do. And you're right, I was very blessed that the treatment center I went to had the parenting classes because it put me ahead of the game. I got the substance abuse done, you know, and like all those things, like I was lucky and I've seen it. And the thing is, like, when I got out of treatment, it was, there was so much I had to do. I had to drug test three times a week, two for probation, one for Department of Children and Families. I had to go to work. I had to work my program of recovery. I had to go to these appointments with the caseworkers. Like I had to do all this stuff or, you know, I mean, there was just so much stuff to do. It feels like a setup for failure, right? Because the How do you work a job and, you know, all these things when you have to do 9 million things all the time? You know, it's difficult. It really is.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That was like my biggest thing, too. I'm like, how do you guys expect me to have stable housing to have? And then you have to have a certain size apartment, depending on the amount of kids you have, because they all need to have their own room. And you're like, how do I do that? How do I do that with therapy, drug treatment, with with all these classes, parenting classes, domestic violence? If you were in it like there's so much they put you through and then your own kids, individual therapy. And you have to take them to this and you have to do that. And it's like, how do I work a job? And they don't even let you work like a graveyard shift, which would also be a setup, because if you, yep. you, you, you're used to using meth or whatever or others, yep. obviously, if you're in a graveyard shift, you're eventually going to be like, OK, I need to use because I'm so tired from all these things during the day. I have to work now. It, it, it really is a setup. I, I don't see how they don't understand that. And and not many. I mean, I feel like there's not very many. make get through that.
1: Yeah. And just like you said before, right? Like I've got 9 million things to do. I've got to work. I've got to do the case plan. I've got to do my probation for my criminal charges. Like I've got all these things to comply with, but I'm tired because I'm early in recovery and I don't have the energy to do everything. So I think that's where people fall off at because they're like, oh, I know how I can get that energy. They won't know, (laughs) you know what I mean? But for me, like, I'm glad that I had to do those three those three drug tests a week because that's what kept me clean in the beginning. It truly yeah. is. I couldn't have used one day and got away with it. I had to drug test on Monday and Friday or Tuesday and Thursday, and I didn't know the other day. So three days a week and and that kept me for my first eighteen months in recovery. So I'm grateful for that now because when it finally went away, like my life had gotten good, you know, like I had my kids. I had my own place. I had a driver's license and a car. You know, I had the things that I always won before, but I could never get my grasp on, you know, so I'm grateful that I had to do all that drug testing
2: because it kept me clean for a while. I held you accountable. Yeah. So how hard was it once your kids came back home to earn their trust, to earn their love? Did that take a long time? How did you go about it? What did you do? What was your strategy with them?
1: That was really hard. And the thing is, like, I had to accept responsibility for my actions, right? I'm the one that used drugs and sent them to my mom's and left them there for six years. That was me, you know, and it's okay if they're mad. It's okay if they don't trust me. It's okay if they don't want to hug me or tell me they love me. Like, I have to understand that because those are the consequences of my actions. So basically, with the help of my support network, because I spent many nights on the phone talking to my sponsor and my friends and saying, like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to be a mom. I am fucking this up, you know, and just talking through it and putting one foot in front of the other. And, you know, they didn't trust that I was going to come home when I said I was going to come home because I, I used to just dip out all the time, you know. They didn't trust that I wasn't going to steal their money because I used to steal the money out of their piggy banks. I had to earn that trust by putting one foot in front of the other one day at a time and following through with what I say I'm going to do. It took some time, you know, and I feel like where we're at now is a really good place, but it took us at least at least more than a year to get to, to where we're at now.
2: Yeah, it definitely takes a lot of strength and a lot of courage and a lot of motivation because sometimes kids say things that you're like, dang, and they hit you, but they're right. So you can't even say anything. Like mm-hmm. I still get sometimes my sense. So when I come home, I immediately take my shoes off. Like I hate wearing my shoes at the house, but sometimes I forget. Right. And just the other day I'd, I had my shoes on and my son was like, take your shoes off. You're not going anywhere. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not. I just forgot to take them off, you know? But I definitely still get those moments where it's like PTSD for them. And they're like, why is she wearing her shoes? She's going to take off. Like you said, I used to take off at all. Like they would go in the room and I I would just wait for them to like turn around and I would leave, you know, so they they still get those flashbacks. Yeah, same.
1: And I think in the long run, there's a lot of work that still has to be done. Like this is never we're never going to be cured or we're never going to be completely healed. Like we have to continue to work on it and have resources for them if they choose to. My kids are they did therapy when I was out of the picture and they don't want to do therapy now. So I can't even if I made them do therapy, it's not going to work unless they're willing. You know, but we but we do leave that door open if they want to talk about it, you know. I mean, we're here and if they want to talk to somebody else, that's okay too.
2: Right. That's very important.
0: Yeah, by the grace of God, I never had to experience any of this, so I can only feel for you guys and I can only imagine but um right at you know end result is as you guys have your kids back and yeah. you know life is where it's at now so tell us um what's life like today for you
1: I mean it honestly blows my freaking mind where my life is at today it really does like you know before I was a homeless, I mean, junkie that slept from couch to couch. I mean, it just didn't matter. Like, I did whatever. And today, you know, I have my kids at home with me. I own my own home. I have a job. As a matter of fact, last week, I accepted a job to help parents get their kids back. Like, to work <laughs> in the system, but not as a social worker. Mm. On the other side, right? You right. know, the kids have, like, a guardian at litem. It's sort of like that, but for the parents. So like everything that I've been through, it's, it's a new thing going, I can't name, I don't want to name it, but right. it's new,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: um, I'm so excited, right? Like everything that I've been through, I get to use to, to help other people. Like that's the most amazing thing in the world. And, you know, I just started sharing my story kind of by a fluke last year and it just absolutely blows my mind. How much it has blown up, you know, and what a need there is for it. There's so many people that have been through this that just don't talk about it. You know, there's so many people that are in it right now, you know, so and my husband is doing great. I mean, our marriage is better than it's ever been ever. You know, after everything that we've been through, it has solidified who we are today, you know, so I mean, life is freaking amazing.
0: You know, and this is why we do what we do, just like you said, because there's too many people right now that are going through, you know, the early stages of recovery, and um, they just feel like it's a it's going to be a failure. You know, we want people to know that, you know, I've been through it, Bonnie's been through it, you've been through it. Like we can come up from where we were, like just because we were an addict and we went through and we, you know, we either went to jail or lost kids or anything all that can change, God can change that around a hundred percent. And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm religious, but not so religious at the end of the day. But the way I look at it is, uh, you can't tell me that God isn't real. If you to look at all of our lives and where we've come. Like, you cannot tell me that God doesn't exist because we've been pulled out of hell. So exactly. this is why we do what we do and, you know, to share your stories and to just give other people hope and inspiration, you know, and We need to work together as a community. Um, I was explaining to Jamie the other day, like, you know, too many people out here and what we're doing is so much competition, you know, who can have more followers who can do this and and it's like, why don't we just, you know, we can do this together as a community, you know, and be able to reach more and just work together. And so we definitely appreciate you sharing your story because people need to hear it. Yeah.
2: Yeah,
1: absolutely unity right like if we come in unity together we can get so much further
2: yeah advocacy you know there's so many people who either don't have the courage because they feel like they're really down and under or they're just shy to to speak but somebody needs to talk about all these things because we will definitely reach people who aren't who aren't doing it themselves and maybe give them the courage to do so You know, definitely going through not just addiction, CPS. And that's why it's so important to share our stories, because we will definitely touch people either in one way or the other. And it doesn't always have to be addiction. just Their stories are very similar, you know, and and advocating for everything we need advocating for. There's so many things that are not talked about because addiction doesn't only come with addiction. It's not only drugs. It's not only it And most definitely comes with a ton of other things that you acquired through your whole addiction. You know, and and it's amazing that you share your story. And I really appreciate what you do with the advocating for parents through CPS, because I I exactly know what you do. That's absolutely amazing. You know, people definitely need to feel like there's somebody on their side because you don't feel like that. You're alone. Everybody looks at you like you said, like you, you ain't shit. And definitely all we need sometimes is just someone, but that one person. It doesn't even matter if it's family or not. It can be a stranger. And sometimes a stranger will provide more support than your own family. So yeah. we all need that one person to just know that they believe in us, that we will get through this. And we do. So I really appreciate what you do, Sonia. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you.
1: Thank you. I love what you said, right? Just finding that one person that believes in me because we believe in the next person, right? Cause I've been there. Like I was broke and busted, you know? Yeah. And if I can come up from that, like anybody can do it. Anybody. Yeah.
0: There's, there's a, um, a guy that I recently met when I was in New York. Um, he's really, he's a really good guy. He's very early on in his recovery. And he um, I check on him every single day. I message him and I check in with them. And he tells me day after day, he's in so much shock and awe that somebody cares, you know, that somebody cares, you know, because, you know, about him. And I'm like, we've all been there. We know what it feels like to be at the bottom. We know what it feels like to have people turn their backs on us to feel like we're not shit, you know, and just to have somebody know like, hey, I'm here with you. I'm walking with you you're not alone, you know, and, and that's the thing, you know, recovery can bring great things in our lives, but let's, let's be honest, you know, in, in the beginning, I mean, it, it's not perfect, you know, people, it's not, you just get sober and, you know, you snap your fingers and life's great. There's crap you're going to have to work through, you know, there's probably the legal things you got to work out through, you know, and it's just, the, that's the way it is, but that's part of making amends and part of, you know, writing your wrongs and everything. And it's just, People have to know that um, it may look, you know, rainy and dark now, but just keep pushing through, and the sun will start shining.
2: Right, that's real. Yeah, it's most definitely Mm -hmm. doable. Look at Sonia; she was living in a shed, somebody's crap house backyard, and she's a she's a homeowner now. Yeah, she's a homeowner now. I know. I saw that. I saw it in your stories. That's absolutely amazing. You never think you'll be like you have nothing to your name. You literally sometimes travel around with a trash bag in your bag with whatever your belongings are because you don't got nowhere to put it. And look at you being a homeowner now. That's amazing. You know,
1: what's funny when I got out of jail, I the, what I left jail with was the clothes they issued me in jail, which we call them the whites down here. I don't know what they're called in other places, but you have your undershirt and your white boxers and your white socks. That's what I left jail with. I had literally nothing to my name, nothing. And today I have like more than I could have ever dreamed of.
2: Yeah.
0: But it just, just everybody that's watching and listening thats she's, you know, living proof that you can change and your life can turn around. And as long as your, your head straight and your heart is right and your intentions are pure, you know, uh, this is, recovery i i can't imagine living life any other way you know and so um thank you again sonia thank you for sharing your story um real quick if you just want to uh, uh share where we can find you we'll put you the, all the links in and everything but if you just want to share you know where we can find you at and and kind of go from there
1: sure so on all of my social profiles if you look in my bio there's a link tree that I'm on uh, facebook instagram tiktok and youtube
0: and we'll be sure to link all of those, um, links in the description of, uh, whether you're watching on YouTube or you're listening on Spotify or whatnot. Um, and man, we, we, uh, it's awesome. Thank you again. And this is going to be, hopefully, you know, we can do some more things together, some more collaborations and, yeah. you know, things are really coming together for, for us and for you. And, uh, we just got to keep working together and
1: keep pushing forward. Yes. I'm totally down to do it.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. being here with us today and sharing your story we really appreciate it absolutely
1: thanks for having me (laughs) any merch i'm working on it i'm working on it it's in my bio i'm working on it i just want to like i don't want to be one of those people that has like one but he's got different style but two coming soon (laughs) stay
2: tuned stay tuned folks coming soon right
0: (laughs) All right. Um, So again, thank you, Sonia. And uh, we will, I'm going to stop this recording um, and then we'll, we'll uh, chat really quick, but thank you again, everybody for listening. Thank you for watching. Um, Definitely uh, check out Sonia on her, all her socials, check out us and uh, we'll see you next time.
2: Thank you, fam.